How's it going? Yeah? 49ers are playing and you're here? You came to serve the true God, not the God of sports. There actually is one if you think about it. Um, but what am I to say? Because even there's a gravitational pull to get me to go home right now to watch the game. To be honest with you. But you know what? That's what TiVo's for. Huh? Those who have it? That's a great point. My bad to you that don't have it. And uh, you've made a tremendous sacrifice. Uh, not really, but the Lord is worthy of our praise, that's for sure. So take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. New Testament, kind of the middle, way to the left, after the uh, four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Acts chapter 15. Somebody's on a Harley out there. And it is cold. We're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Acts beginning at verse 2 of chapter 15. Last Sunday we looked at how a group of unauthorized men came down from Jerusalem to the church where Paul and Barnabas were pastoring in Syrian Antioch. When these men arrived at this church they began to preach to the Gentile converts. These are non-Jewish believers. Uh, they began to preach to these people, this church of these folks, uh, a false message of salvation. They said this in chapter 15, verse 1, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They basically added circumcision to salvation or to faith, the faith that saves Paul and Barnabas had been preaching that salvation has nothing to do with human effort because it is purely a work of God by his grace alone through faith alone. But these men contradicted them by adding circumcision, this physical act which threw the church into confusion and disunity. In an effort to destroy this false view of salvation, this idea of faith plus doing something... We looked at, more particularly last week, we looked at what's called the Ordo Salutis, and that would be Latin for order of salvation, in Romans 8, 28 uh, to 30. Uh, it is there where we read that God foreknew whom he would save in eternity past, that God predestined them to salvation, that God calls them to repentance and faith with an effectual call, that God justifies them by his grace and by the faith they exercise that gift he gives, and that God glorifies them by bringing their salvation to completion at resurrection. Nowhere in that golden chain, in the order by which God saves people, that whole order, nowhere in it do we read anything to do with human effort. There's nothing in there that we do. It is purely an act of God. And, and so we kind of went through that in some detail to show that salvation is truly of God. Therefore, the message these men went up and preached to these new believers up there at this church was a false message. The text of Romans 8.28 to 30 corroborates with what the rest of the Bible teaches about salvation. In the Bible, God is always portrayed as the rescuer, as the redeemer, as the savior. As the deliverer and natural man is always portrayed as fallen, dead in sin, depraved, doomed, lost, and pretty much hopeless in sin. The question now becomes, since we've kind of reached this point, how did Paul and Barnabas respond to the false teachers who had come up from Jerusalem? What did they do to deal with this colossal error that threw this church into turmoil and disunity, which confused all these believers? Them believing that we were saved by faith alone, by grace alone. And now they've been told, well, it's not just that. You've got to go out and get circumcised. You've got to go do this physical thing in order to be saved. How did Paul and Barnabas respond to the situation? And that is where we will pick up in verse 2, but I feel that it's necessary to pray one more time before we study the Word of God together. God, we uh, 
need your assistance during the teaching of your word. Because we are not naturally prone to receive it, to understand it, to believe it, to live it out, to apply it. The natural man, the man who does not have faith in Jesus Christ, cannot process, apply, or do any of these things. He's helpless. And even those who have been redeemed by your blood are still dull, still have flesh, still have distractions and things that prohibit and keep them from listening, hearing, and accepting, and applying, and living out your word. So we need your help, Lord Jesus. Come. Fill this place with your presence and make your truth known to us. Regenerate some, sanctify others. So may we learn at your feet now. And we thank you in advance for the work that you will do. And we lift these things up in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's pick up over in verse 2, Acts chapter 15, verse Two, we're going to see how Paul and Barnabas responded. It says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Luke tells us that they had no small dissension and debate with them. They engaged in a debate with these false teachers, these men who had come. They didn't just let them teach what they were teaching and, and kind of get away with it and say, well, you know, that's just another way to look at it. Or, you know what, hey, you know, at the end of the day, it's really all about Jesus. And they mentioned Jesus, so that's cool. It's just a variation of Christianity. They didn't prohibit, they didn't allow any of that stuff. In fact, they prohibited it greatly. They had no small dissension and debate with them. Dissension is an interesting, interesting word. It comes from the Greek noun called stasis. Stasis means to engage in intense and emotional expressions of difference of opinions. It means to quarrel vociferously, which is to express your feelings in a loud, forceful manner. Pretty loud, huh? It means to engage the other in a loud, vociferous way. No, sir, you are wrong, and I'm going to show you how you're wrong. To raise your voice, to get into it. That is what they did. A vociferous person is one who is marked by or given to vehement, instant or insistent outcry. There's a persistence to the vociferous person. They keep Banging the same drum, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. Lifting up the voice, holding the attention of all, debating hard. Not just, well, you know, I think it's, let me, let me get out my journal and read you what I think. No, it's, no, sirs, you are wrong. Vociferous, an interesting thing. Now, the famous 17th century English poet and author of Paradise Lost, do you know who it is? John Milton, have you heard of John Milton? He comes to mind here. He was known as a vociferous debater in politics, theology, and, and some legal matters. In 1645, his talents caught the eye of parliamentary forces, and he was hired to provide high-quality propaganda for Oliver Cromwell's government. Interestingly, in 2002... Cromwell was placed on Britain's top ten greatest people of all time. Milton, undoubtedly, who was an incredible debater, I mean, you just couldn't stand against this guy. You got up there, well, you know, had it, and he just blew your doors off. He just launched you. You just could his intelligence, his brilliance, his wit, and the power by which he spoke in his speech was just devastating to all of Cromwell's Opposers, And in 2002, they said Cromwell's the best ever. Well, there's no doubt that Milton helped him to achieve that status much later on. He was an incredibly vociferous debater. And the text makes it clear that Paul and Barnabas contended for the truth 
in this same spirit, in this same manner, in this same way. It was a vociferous resistance against what they knew to be an enemy gospel, a false gospel, something that, that threatened these believers. They got fired up is what we would say. They got loud. They got forceful. And why wouldn't they? The gospel of Jesus Christ was on the line. The salvation of sinners was on the line. The unity of the church was on the line. And the glory of God was under attack. The glory of God is inseparable from the person and work of Jesus Christ in the salvation of lost sinners. In fact, Ephesians 2.9 makes it clear that the ultimate purpose for salvation is God's glory. If we add to or subtract from the person and completed work of Jesus Christ, we defame God. God has made it clear that he will yield or share his glory with no one else, as so clearly said in Isaiah 42, 8. By adding circumcision to faith in salvation, these men defamed God. Through their message, they were declaring that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were not enough. They rejected Jesus' own words on the cross where he said, It is finished. It's me that's done it and achieved it for you, lost sinners. There's nothing that you can add or subtract from it. It is finished. It is entirely of me and of my ministry and work. They rejected Jesus' own words. And Paul and Barnabas became infuriated, and rightfully so. They vociferously debated with them, but that isn't all that they did. This error, this heresy was worthy of more action and attention than a fierce, vociferous debate. Paul and Barnabas assembled a team and then went to Jerusalem to discuss the manner you might say that they went to Jerusalem to bring it before the high court of the church, the apostles, the elders. And that is precisely what they did. Let's look at verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. On the way to Jerusalem to go report this matter, they stopped off to visit believers in Phoenicia and Samaria to share the good news of what God was doing in the Gentile, non-Jewish communities up north. It says they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And what that triggers is this. Paul and Barnabas didn't stop, you know, right in this, these areas and the, these churches in Phoenicia and Samaria and just basically say, hey guys, God saved a whole bunch of Gentiles up north. Let's just all rejoice together. No, that's not what they did. They didn't just come and give this quick report so everyone would rejoice. They actually explained to the believers in Phoenicia and Samaria, how God saved these Gentile people. You see, it says they described in detail the conversion. What is that? How God saved these people. Very interesting. Paul and Barnabas may have taught through the golden chain of Romans that we talked about. It was penned a little later, but there's no doubt that Paul knew it and understood it. They may have taught that to show that this was a work of God entirely or you know they may have defined the ordo salutis there that order of salvation God chose and predestines in these things or they might have explained how the Gentiles were saved just as they these apostles here or Paul and Barnabas had been saved by grace alone through faith alone now why did they give these explicit details and go through this order of how God saves with these people I'd like to propose three reasons 
Number one, Paul and Barnabas wanted to see if the brothers in these communities had been exposed to the heresy of the men from Jerusalem. They wanted to check, are our brothers here okay? Do they have a right understanding of how they've been redeemed? Of how they've been saved? Have their minds been poisoned by this lie of faith plus? Faith plus circumcision. They brought it up and brought up these details. They wanted to know if they had been exposed. If they began to say how God did it, then they would probably receive opposition by these brothers. Well, wait a minute, Paul. It's not just a faith and grace thing. It's a circumcision thing. That's number one. Number two, Paul and Barnabas wanted to educate and equip the brothers by defining biblical salvation. I don't have any doubts that these men and these brothers and sisters of the Lord in these communities doubted or didn't understand how they were saved. I believe they did. But I believe that part of Paul and Barnabas' strategy here was to educate and equip them regardless. Let's just go over how you've been saved, how you've been redeemed, how God worked this out. To equip them, to educate them. It's important that we study the Word of God to see how God functions and how He's functioned in your own life and how He's saved you. One of the biggest problems in the church today is believers just don't even, they believe, but they don't know why or what in any detail what they believe. And, and then when they are met by opposition, those outside of the church who, you know, reject the faith and these things, they can't even defend the truth. Well, I, I just believe. You just believe what? Jesus, he came. Okay. And, and then, you know, it just, it just falls apart. We should know and be able to communicate how God has done this great thing that he's done for us. Miraculous thing. That's number two. Number three, Paul and Barnabas. This is great. I love Paul and Barnabas. This is great. Paul and Barnabas wanted to gather support for their doctrinal position before traveling to Jerusalem to make a case, right? Hey, guys, this is how God does it. What do you think? Yeah, okay, you're going to back us up? Because we're going to go down there and make a claim because we've got this false thing happening. Doesn't it make sense to go to other brothers and sisters and, and, to, and to communicate with them, to talk through this with them, and to gain that support, gain understanding first and foremost, protect them, equip them, but to also get support. We're going to go make a claim before the highest court, and, and, and we need you to understand what salvation's about. We need you to be able to contend for it if these men ever show up here. And guess what? We need your backing. We need to be unified as a church in terms of how God saves, right? So they went and worked it a little bit to get some support. And I, like I say so often, the more support, the better, right? So those are three reasons why I believe they went into not just saying, hey, man, a bunch of people got saved. Well, guess what? A bunch of people got saved, and this is how God did it. Three reasons why. Now, after describing in detail who God saved... And how God saved them, it says that great joy was brought to all the brothers. Do you see it there in your Bible? You know, the, the true brother and sister, the true person of faith rejoices when God redeems others. And when God gets every ounce of glory for their salvation. And, and when, you know, brothers and sisters are made to realize that it's entirely a work of God. They know they can't rejoice in any human effort or anything. And they just solely rejoice in God. And that's exactly what played out here. They rejoiced. There was, there was great joy amongst, amidst all the brothers. And Paul and Barnabas... Obviously, because of that joy, experienced no resistance from anyone whatsoever. It doesn't say that, well, people just started to argue against them and this doctrinal position, this subject that they brought up. There was no debate. There was no questioning. There was no confusion amongst the believers in Phoenicia and Samaria. Only joy, which says either the heretics had yet to come to these places or if they had, maybe the brothers in these communities held their ground and dismissed them, and rightfully so. We don't know for sure how it played out, but there was great joy. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4. Text kind of moves quickly, doesn't it? Or I'm moving quickly, I don't know. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, so they left Phoenicia and Samaria, these churches in these areas, and the, they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders uh, uh, and, and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. So they came and gave testimony to what happened. Hey, this was our missions journey, we went out and did these things. Now this is really, really cool here because 
it had been several years, probably three or four, since Paul and Barnabas had actually been in Jerusalem. They had been sent from there to go to Syrian Antioch, and then from Syrian Antioch they had been sent out to do a mission, which took two years. So this is the first time they'd been back with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, with the church at Jerusalem. And when they got there, they you know, began to declare all that God had done with them. They talked about their mission trip and, and the new Gentile, you know, non-Jewish believers and, and the churches they planted on, on the island of Cyprus and, and then in Galatia and in Pamphylia. They probably talked about their home church in Syrian Antioch as well. There's no doubt that church was growing. I suspect they gave some of the same details here that they did in Phoenicia and Samaria. They probably described not only who God saved, but how God saved them. Verse 5 seems to indicate this. While they were speaking, however, seemingly familiar voices began to ring out. Look at our last verse, verse 5. You know, they were sharing all this cool stuff, and God did this by his grace and by his mercy. Gentiles responded the same way we did, by faith. No mention of circumcision or human effort or anything here. And as they're proclaiming all these things to the, to the apostles and to the elders and the church at Jerusalem, all of a sudden there was chatter. There was an interruption. It says in verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. They didn't just speak up. They stood up and interrupted. And they said as they stood up, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What in the heck is going on here? Paul and Barnabas came probably expecting complete unity in regards to the matter at hand. Right? You'd think that if you go to the home base, they're going to get it. We're talking about the apostles here. We're talking about the elders here. We're talking about the high guys here. Surely they would know and understand biblical salvation. But it wasn't the apostles and the elders that protested. It wasn't those men who interrupted. No, no, no. It was the group of Christian converts who belong to the super legalistic sect known as the Pharisees. They were the ones who interrupted Paul and Barnabas. But there is something, if you notice carefully, different about these guys and the men of verse 1, these false teachers who went up and proclaimed this false message. And that's it. The men of verse 1 promoted a clear heresy by teaching circumcision or by adding or tying circumcision to salvation, human effort. MacArthur wrote that the men of verse 1 became known as the heretical group, the Judaizers. They actually kind of evolved off into this sect claiming to be Christian but also Jewish and proclaiming this false gospel. And let me tell you something, they harassed the churches that Paul Planted. Have you ever read the book of Galatians? It is one missile attack against the Judaizers and the poison and the circumcision, these things they brought in and confused these churches that Paul and Barnabas worked, went out and at the threat of their own lives, you know, for the glory of God, planted these churches. That happens a little later on. We'll begin to look at that in some detail. The Apostle Paul did some serious battle with these Judaizers, those guys from verse 1. The guys in verse 5, the Pharisee converts, did not mention salvation, did they? You don't see it there. They didn't say, ah, it's necessary that they get saved, that they get circumcised in order to be saved. You don't see that in verse 5. You don't see anything like that in the text at all. So they were not adding to salvation here, these Pharisees. They may have been trying to bind the Gentiles to their Jewish customs or ordinances. Pharisees were very legalistic and liked to force their rituals and rules and, and these sorts of things on others. Uh, they once ridiculed Jesus for, you know, not making his disciples wash their hands a special way before eating. It's quite phenomenal what happens there in the Gospels. And, and Jesus denounced them and their ritual so the issue here had to do with legalism more so than salvation with these particular guys. 
Here's the fact of the matter. Both groups of men, the men in verse 1 and the men in verse 5, were wrong. The men of verse 1 were wrong about salvation. They were heretics and false teachers. The Pharisee believers of verse 5 were wrong. They were being legalistic and attempting to burden these non-Jewish believers with things that had been brought to fulfillment by Jesus Christ. Another thing to consider is that the Pharisee believers were, you know, or Pharisees, I, I guess, were well accustomed with Gentile or pagan behavior and may have feared that the Gentile converts would continue in all their, you know, ungodly and wicked practices. And that's why they brought up obedience to the Mosaic law here. It could be that. There might have been a little bit of sincerity behind their desire to see these, you know, Gentile non-Jewish converts obey the law of Moses. You certainly just can't get saved and go off and do whatever you want and act a fool and return to your old ways. It could be that. I suspect that legalism was probably more of the motive. Just making people do a bunch of things to be justified before God. Taking on traditions and circumcision and these kinds of things. So the question becomes, were the Gentiles... What would the ruling be? Were the Gentiles to do as the Pharisees suggested? Were they required to get circumcised and keep the Mosaic law, not in terms of their salvation, but in terms of living rightly before God or being justified before God? Or I think the big point is to be considered part of the covenant body of God. Now we're going to have to wait till our next section to find out. We're not going to engage that yet because there's too much to go over and to extract from what you've heard. Before moving on, I'd like for us to ponder a quote by Martin Luther. It was the quote for last week, but I didn't get very far, so I never had a chance to read it. Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. This statement is 100% true. Saving faith is never alone. Saving faith is always accompanied by works. Saving faith always produces works. This is because the recipient of God's grace and saving faith is or becomes a changed person. They become a new creation and now have a heart and disposition of love and service towards God and obedience towards God. Therefore, once saved, these works begin to follow. These good things begin to follow. What works are we referring to here? Righteous works. Worshipful works. Works that please God and benefit people. Works that serve God according to the scriptures. Good, wholesome, godly things. Things that build others up. Things that encourage others. Things that bless God's heart. According to James 2.17, any person who claims to be saved but has no works is not saved. This is a strong warning. One of the startling things I've noticed about our day and age is the growing number of people who claim to be Christian but live in ways that do not honor the Lord. They engage in all sorts of fruitless and wicked activities. They are profane. They are perverse. Sin doesn't bother them. There is no remorse. There is no brokenness. There is no contrition over sin. And they have no righteous works. Is that what true saving faith is like? No. Think of it like this in its simplest way that I can express it to you. If you believe in Jesus Christ... You will be like Jesus Christ. Think of the works Jesus did while he was in the world. 
I'll give you some examples. And as I read them to you and out loud, ask yourself, am I like Jesus? Do these works accompany the faith that I claim to have? Think about these things. Jesus glorified God in everything. Do you glorify God in everything? Jesus obeyed the commands of God. Do I obey the commands of God? Jesus prayed to God. Do you pray to God? Jesus loved the unlovable. Those whom we think aren't worthy of anything because of their attitude, because of their behavior, because of their poor choices. Jesus loved them. Do you love them? Jesus showed compassion. Do you show compassion? Jesus comforted others. These are all outer workings. Do I comfort others? Jesus forgave others. Huge. Are you a forgiver? Jesus served others. Are you a servant? Jesus taught others. Do I teach others? Jesus healed others. Do you work to heal others spiritually, emotionally, any way that you can? You see broken people and it shatters you. You empathize. You want to get into their skin and help to bring grace-based relief. Do you do that? Jesus gave generously. Do you give generously? Jesus upheld the truth. He defended the truth. Do you uphold the truth? Jesus corrected error. Do you correct error? I'm not talking about in some weird self-righteous way where you go out pointing out everything that people do. But are you that kind of person of faith that when you hear clear error, you stand in opposition to it and correct it in a loving way? Or if someone adds to salvation, do you argue against that, what they're, that point they're making vociferously as Paul and Barnabas did? Do you uphold the truth? Do you, up, do you correct error? Jesus boldly rebuked evil. Do I boldly rebuke evil? Jesus sacrificed himself. Do you sacrifice yourself for the cause of the gospel, for the benefit of others, for the betterment of your community, for the benefit of your church, for the Lord Almighty? These are just some of the things that Jesus, the outward workings of who Jesus is. If we claim to believe in Jesus We should be like Jesus and do the same things that Jesus did. Romans 8.29 says something that's just spectacular. We studied it last week. It says that God predestines the elect. He predestines the people who will be saved to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is what salvation truly is. It is to not just, you know, our American idea of it is to just go to heaven someday and turn into a fat little cherub and pluck a harp on a cloud. Because that's what we think. Well, everyone gets to do that. Little cherub playing stairway to heaven, you know. And she's blind, you can't buy it. You got to at least get that part right. No, salvation according to the scripture is the process of being made like Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. That's what salvation is. Salvation is to be made like Jesus. If we are saved, then we should be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That is God's plan. Saved people live and act like Jesus Saved people do as Jesus did. Saved people follow his example, not perfectly at all times because of our flesh, but there will be a progression in terms of growing to become like Jesus regardless of the flesh. 
And we need to know this, and this is so important. We need to know that God uses our struggles and our stumblings to make us like Christ. Some of my deepest growth moments have come in the middle of or on the tail end of some of my greatest struggles and failings. God has even used the, the mean and nasty things or the, the, you know, the hurtful things that others have done to me to change me, to mold me, to make me more like Christ. He uses the failings of others in what we call sanctification, in my own sanctification, to make me like Christ. Now listen, if God promises to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, as so clearly stated in the Bible, then I think it's safe to say that God uses the good, God uses the bad, and God uses the ugly of our lives to make us more and more like Christ. God wastes nothing. not believe this but the goal of your suffering is to make you like Christ therefore we should pray differently shouldn't we let me encourage you for a moment and I say this to those who struggle with health issues and problems. Beloved, change the way you pray. Instead of offering up a constant stream of requests for healing and bodily health and wholeness, ask God to make you like Jesus Christ who endured bodily suffering for the sake of the gospel and an eternal reward. For those who struggle in marriage and relationships, change the way you pray. Instead of asking God to change your spouse, to change your boyfriend, to change your fiance, your girlfriend, or your friend, ask him to make you like Jesus who endured betrayal, scoffing, and ridicule for the sake of the gospel and an eternal reward for those who struggle with the searing pain of loss. You've lost someone. Change the way you pray. Instead of asking God or maybe walking away from God because of that emotional pain of loss, pray to him, make me like Christ who suffered loss. You, you think that the reason why that person was taken was for the purpose of destroying you or for the purpose of severing your tie to the living God. It was not. It was to make you like Christ. It was to sanctify you. It was to teach you. It was to humble you. Maybe it was for the purpose of just awakening you to this loving God who cares about your shattered and broken heart. There's a purpose behind why he takes people. If you're a Christian, it's because he's transforming you into the image of Christ. That's why people die, to make you like Christ. For those who struggle with the flesh, that's all of us. Change the way you pray. And this, man, let me tell you, this applies to me like you can't imagine. Instead of asking God, man, get rid of this two-ounce tongue. Get rid of my profanity. Get rid of my lust. Get rid of my anger. Get rid of my bad attitude and my worldliness. Ask him to make you like Jesus who endured and overcame the world for the sake of the gospel and eternal reward. Do you not know, friend, that Christ overcame the world for you? You need to become like Christ so you can overcome your struggles. I've always wondered why, God, don't you take away these little things that pester me? Because he's actually using them to teach me and to draw me deeper into his grace to make me more like Christ. 
Do I want those things gone? Are you kidding me? I can't stand what I do sometimes. For those who find themselves in the midst of difficult circumstances, change the way you pray. Instead of asking God to change or remove your difficult circumstances, ask him to make you like Jesus who endured and remained on mission in the midst of difficult circumstances. Why? For the sake of the gospel and an eternal reward. The purpose of our health struggles, the purpose of our relational struggles, the purpose of our flesh struggles, the purpose behind the loss and things that we suffer, the, pers- the purpose behind or for our circumstantial struggles isn't to bring us to despair or to destroy us. On the contrary, those things are there to make us more like Christ. God uses these things to sanctify his people. He uses these things to mold and conform his children into the image of his son. He uses everything for this end. He wastes nothing. Don't pray, God, take it away. Pray, God, do your finest work on me in the midst of this. Make me like Christ who endured the cross because of the joy that was awaiting him. That should be our heart cry. That should be our prayer, friends. Asking God to remove your predicament or ailment or whatever it is might be equivalent to saying, stop sanctifying me, Father. Stop using these difficult things to make me like Christ. When we say, take it away, he's probably saying, no, I'm using it to change you. Quit asking me to take it away. I want you to become like Christ. And here we are, I can't handle the kidney stone. And I've prayed that prayer. Because I've had them. He uses these things to mold and conform us to the image of his son. Asking God to remove these things could be equivalent to saying, stop changing me. God, take away my illness and my relational problems and my flesh struggles and my difficult circumstances and take away my sanctification. What sense does that make? None. We should declare, God, mold me and make me to be like Jesus in the midst of these things. Use my pain, use my tears, and use my heartache to make me like Christ who suffered for me. Use all things, Father, whether they be pleasant, whether they be painful, whether they be pitiful, to conform me to the image of your Son. Waste nothing. Use everything. That should be our heart cry. Moving on, earlier I read a quote concerning faith and works by Luther. Here's a similar one by A.W. Tozer. He said... To escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. People tend to take things too far. I'm a person and I do this all the time. In an effort to show that salvation isn't by works, it's all by grace. That's what we've been talking about. An effort to show that salvation isn't by works at all. Some people completely throw out obedience to the law of God. We call this antinomianism. That's the technical or theological term. This is the belief that the law, we'll think of the Ten Commandments as I say law, serves no purpose in the life of believers because they are saved purely by grace. This is false for two reasons, this belief. Number one, the law shows us what righteous living is like. How are we to know how to honor God with our lives if we do away with his precepts, with his commandments? God has told us what pleases him in the law. If we jettison, throw out the law, how will we know how to live for him? And some people say, well, we'll just follow Jesus' example. What example do you think he was following? He followed the law perfectly. He didn't just come down and change everything. And, 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 you know, oh, the Old Testament doesn't mean anything. Half of Leviticus and Deuteronomy mean nothing. Just look at my example. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He used the law to defend against error. Without the law, we have no idea. Just think of the Ten Commandments. How am I to know 
what pleases God if I don't know the commandments? For the believer, we don't pursue those things so that we can be saved. We pursue them and aim our life towards them because we are saved. We say, what pleases you, God? What mode of living, li living pleases you? Oh, it's this. This is what you require. I'm going to set my sights on that. And by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your grace, I'm going to live these things out. I'm going to do my best. And I'll confess when I don't. Number two, God saves us from the penalty of the law and then empowers us to obey the law. This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. We are saved from the law, in a way, to obey the law. What the heck? Think of it like this. We were once faithless lawbreakers, okay? We are disobedient against the Ten Commandments, if we will. We've all lied and done these things. We were faithless lawbreakers, but God saved us that we might become law-abiding citizens of his kingdom. Not so that we can earn anything from God, but that we might please and honor him through righteous living. If we take away the law, how do we know how to live and please God? You must not throw away the law. Jesus warned against this line of thinking in the Gospel of John in 14 verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. What was Jesus referring to here? What are my commandments? I believe he summarized them in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. He said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here we see the two tables of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Table 1 includes commandments 1 through 4, which are all about loving and worshiping God rightly. Table 2 includes commandments 5 through 10, which are all about loving man rightly. Jesus summarized both tables in his statement. Love God with your whole person and love your neighbor as yourself. In John 14, 15, he tied loving him to obeying these commandments. Those who love the Lord Jesus will obey his commands. Love God with all you got and love others as you love yourself. True salvation will be accompanied by obedience to these commandments. How does the antinomian deal with Matthew 5, 17 to 19? In that passage, Jesus warned that the law will stand until the end of the age. And, not, and he warns not to relax the least of the commandments. If Jesus warns us not to relax the least of the commandments, I think it's fair to assume that they still have a purpose and we shouldn't throw them out. Jesus might have been referring to the Sermon on the Mount in, in that particular gospel passage, which is an in-depth articulation and exposition of the law. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, all the way up through Matthew 7 and a half? It's all the law expounded by Jesus Christ. It is the Ten Commandments brought out in such depth and beauty, it's mind-blowing. I believe Jesus was probably referring to that. That's what we obey. Now, here's the bottom line. Salvation and obedience to the commandments are inseparable. Salvation always produces obedience. And faith and works are inseparable. Faith always produces works. This is biblical salvation. But the men from Jerusalem had it, that part, and they had it backwards. They had faith plus works rather than faith producing works. That's the key. This is why Paul and Barnabas argued against them vociferously. This is why they decided to go to Jerusalem to bring the matter before the ecumenical council. This is why they stopped in Phoenicia and Samaria on the way to share, warn, and gather support. Much is at stake. You cannot be saved if you don't understand how salvation works. You must understand that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according uh, for the glory of God alone, according to the Bible alone. You can't add anything to it. 
It's not, I believe plus I go get baptized. I believe plus I get circumcised. I believe plus I have to obey all these commandments because that's really how I get saved. It's you believe alone, by grace alone. When these Paul and Barnabas, when they arrived in Jerusalem, so much was at stake there, friends, but at, when they arrived in Jerusalem, the Pharisee believers added more difficulty to the situation, didn't they? They wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses so that they could enter a covenant relationship with God and the church. But the Gentiles were in covenant relationship through the blood of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus made a new covenant through his shed blood. At the Last Supper, he called it the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant replaced the old covenant of circumcision. The new covenant replaced the old covenant, uh, the old covenant requirements of the law of Moses. Neither circumcision nor the law of Moses was required for covenant membership in the church and kingdom of God. Only the blood covering of Jesus Christ by faith, receiving that by faith, was necessary and is necessary today. And the fact of the matter is these Gentile believers in Syria and Antioch who got corrupted by this false teaching, they already were in, they were already covered by the blood of Jesus. They had all they needed. They didn't need to add to anything to their salvation. They were saved by grace through faith. They had what they needed and that I think is precisely why Paul and Barnabas really blew a gasket and vociferously argued against these false teachers who said, "You don't. Have, what you have isn't enough." Some of you might even be thinking that right now. I believe, but it's not enough. What more could you add? You're better than Jesus. What you could do is better than what he did. No. Well, some closing questions to ponder. Do you have faith? I think that's a starting point. Are you a person of faith? Have you come to the realization that you're a lost sinner? That you need to say, be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? That without Christ you will perish for all eternity? That you stand condemned right now where you sit. You got your health, you got your family, you got your job, you got all these things, but you don't have God and he's what matters. You're an enemy of his. Without faith, you're an enemy. And it's only a matter of time. Do you have faith? Does your faith produce works? you have a vibrant, living faith where you're living out these things that Christ did? You're generous, you're loving, you're forgiving, you're merciful. Do you have faith that mimics? Are you like Christ? Are you struggling with sickness and relationships with the flesh or in your circumstances? What do you pray for? Do you play for deliverance or do you pray for transformation to be made like Christ? Wow. Are you saved? Are you a saved person? You sit right where you're at. You've been redeemed by that precious blood of Jesus Christ. By his mercy and by his grace, you receive that by faith. Are you a saved person? Does your salvation produce obedience to the commands of God? Because it should, if you're truly saved. Do you belong to the new covenant? Have you been covered and brought into covenant relationship with God and his church by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Or do you belong to this world? is perishing, that is spiraling out of control. Ponder these things before you take the communion elements. 
Evaluate yourself. Confess any sin that you have. Ask God to renew and restore you. Pledge yourself to the Lord and to the gospel. And remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remember that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's all in him. It's all through what he did. Remember that God wastes nothing. It could very well be that the purpose behind whatever it is that you've been through was to bring you to the point that is taking place right now. The realization that you need Jesus Christ. That's why you suffered loss. That's why you've suffered pain. That's why you've suffered difficult circumstances. That's why you've suffered ridicule. That's why you've suffered. And God would use these things to point to him and to point to the cross where Jesus hung and died to offer salvation to those who would repent and believe in him. Maybe that's why God brought you here today. If you have yet to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, please abstain from taking the juice and bread. They are for the saints alone, for the saved people. It is a celebration that, that we partake in to remember what Christ did for us and how he suffered and his body was broken and he spilled his blood and that salvation is entirely in him and of what he did and that we could add nothing to it, that we may just receive it by faith and enjoy all of his blessings and promises and an eternity with him and not just an eternity with him but an abundant life now of joy, of peace, and of purpose. That every day that we're being made more and more like Christ, that we might rejoice in our suffering because he suffered for us. Do you know the apostles rejoiced when they suffered for Christ's name? Because they figured, wow, we're like Christ if we're suffering like him. We want to be like Christ. That's the goal of salvation. They rejoiced when they were beaten. They rejoiced when they were ridiculed. They were rejoiced when they were persecuted, when they were striped with whips and cursed. And may we, as the body of Christ, rejoice as they did because God is making us like Christ. Amen. And Father, as we enter into this time of communion, God, I pray that it would be a confessional time, that we would confess our sin before you, Lord, and that we would come to this great realization that you orchestrate things in such a way to bring us to uh, saving knowledge of yourself. Or if we are saved, to the knowledge that you are using these difficult things for our own transformation. And that you are a God who does not waste. That you can take, and that you do take, the ugliest things that happen to us, the most difficult things. And you can turn them into the most beautiful things. Because through them we come to know you. We become made more like Christ. And to be like Christ is incredible. He is beautiful and wonderful. The best friend one could ever have. The best brother one could ever have. The only savior that anyone could ever have. He is the way, the truth, and the life. May those who have yet to come to know him here come to know him in a saving way and begin to produce fruit and obedience and works. Would you save them and sanctify them? And those of us who know you, Lord, may we remind, be reminded during this time of what you've done. May we rejoice in all that you've done. May we rejoice in our sufferings because you suffered for us, Christ unspeakable pain, unspeakable torment, unspeakable anguish that we might be brought into relationship and redeemed by you and transformed into your own image. May we rejoice in that. Thank you for the elements. Thank you for what they represent. Broken body, spilled blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant, a new way to live in joy, peace, 
with great purpose in the gospel. And great love. To be loved by you is unlike being loved by anyone. It is perfect. It is satisfying. It nourishes us. It transforms us. Your love is immense. It is greater and higher than anything. We get to abide in it, enjoy it, and you never pull it from us. Nothing can separate us from your love. May we remember these things, confess our sin, and enjoy this time with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Elements are on the sides. Please help yourselves.